Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm great, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you and our guest. Yeah, very much the same. Been looking forward to this episode. I think it's focused on a very important topic, which is centered around the idea that we all want to be effective out in the world. We want to be successful at home and at work. We want to achieve our goals and generally get the most out of life. Much of the time, working with effort and energy can feel really good, but it's also pretty easy for the pursuit of high achievement to fall prey to unhealthy forms of striving, perfectionism, and productivity anxiety. So how do we balance all of that? How do we balance getting what we want from life without unnecessary tension and anxiety? How do we aim high while also feeling at ease? To help us do that, we're joined by a wonderful clinical psychologist, an expert in ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy, and a fellow podcaster, Dr. Diana Hill. Dr. Hill specializes in evidence-based and compassion-focused approaches to living well. She has a thriving private practice in Santa Barbara, California, and she's the author of the ACT Daily Journal. She's also one of the hosts of the wonderful Psychologists Off the Clock podcast. If you enjoy being well, you will probably love that too. So, Diana, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's wonderful to be here with the two of you. I just really appreciate this podcast for myself personally, and so it's a real honor to be on the show. Oh, thank you. That's really lovely to hear. And I mean, likewise, I love your podcast. I love the repartee between the hosts, which is fantastic. So it'll be great to be doing this with you today. Uh, you've worked a lot with recovering perfectionists and other people who struggle with this territory. And we'll get into all of that, but I would actually like to start, if you're okay with it, with your personal experience. What's your own journey been like with unhealthy striving, and how does that inform your work? Well, gosh, I like to say that my relationship with striving is sort of like a frenemy in that it's mm. done wonderful things for me in my life. I mean, that's how you get your PhD and how you Absolutely. be successful at your work. Yep. And it's also taken me down in a few ways. Early on in my life, I developed anorexia, which in some mm. some people would consider it sort of the Olympian of striving. And you're you're doing sort of everything that oh, society man. has told you to do. I mean, really, you have. You've done yeah. everything society has told you to do to be successful, especially as a young woman. And it completely destroyed me, right? Yeah. And so that really launched me into my own recovery process and wanting to pursue clinical work and being a clinical psychologist. But along the way, that frenemy has shown up in different ways. And I've had to kind of discover and uncover what is driving it, how I can shift it maybe into healthy achievement without it being so detrimental to me. And also it's led me to a passion to help others that maybe struggle with striving, perfectionism. I work a lot with overachievers as well. I wonder if you could give some examples of stressful striving. The word that just arose for me a moment ago is the clench that gets added to what Forrest was saying, added to appropriate aspirational effort toward a good cause. And a lot of people who add that clench of pressure and contraction and self-criticism, you know, kind of lashing themselves to keep on going, keep on going, they think there's a reason for being that way. They think it's good to be that way. They're part of a culture that says, yeah, you got to be that way if you want to be part of the tribe. It might be helpful for them to have some examples of, I would say, when the clench is added 
And it really doesn't need to be added, but what are forms of the clench? And even examples, on the other hand, of dreaming big dreams and aiming high and working hard, but without adding that contraction to it. Sure. You know, actually, it came up for me personally over COVID and 2020, sort of summer of COVID when everyone was taking a deep dive. And my frenemy came back. Mm. I found myself mm. working a lot and getting into this overproductivity around my work mm. because it was triggered by my own anxiety, my own uncertainty. And I actually, I remember making this list of what are the signs for me? Because as a, as a psychologist, it's really helpful to be able to identify your pattern so that you can spot it when it shows up and then maybe you can take a different path. And so I wrote down this list and maybe listeners could see if they check mark some of these boxes of unhealthy striving. So it included things like exhaustion and burnout, rigid perfectionism, reaching achievements and goals, but still feeling dissatisfied. So you mm -hmm. get there, you get the prize, but it feels like it has no weight to it. It doesn't mm -hmm. really settle into your body or your being. Always doing and rarely allowing yourself to be, mm -hmm. being in that doing mode without allowing yourself to be in the being mode. Meeting other people's obligations over meeting your own. Mm -hmm. I have a tendency mm -hmm. of doing that. I throw that people-pleasing. We can be people-pleasing strivers. And neglecting your own body's needs or maybe even becoming disembodied. So not paying attention to things like skipping meals because you're just going, going, going. And then finally, I think there's a feeling of doing more, but never feeling like you're doing enough, mm. that you're chronically behind. Mm. And we can apply that type of striving. You know, I can see it in moms that I work with that are like stay-at-home moms. They can be strivers or executives that I work with. They can be strivers or college students. And what it ultimately comes down to is a disconnection from the self, not checking in with your own needs, mm. and experiential avoidance. You're using striving to avoid something else, something that you don't want to feel, mm -hmm. a belief about yourself that you don't want to, you know, sort of that not good enoughness. Or it can also be about our society and culture's overstimulation of our drive system. And we know that, you know, so like the work of Anne, Anna Lemke's Dopamine Nation, we are all being overstimulated. Our drive system is overstimulated. And that leads us to keep on pursuing more and maybe mm. never feeling like we've really achieved a sense of contentment or even achieved a sense of being in line with the type of person we want to be. Mm. That is fantastic. And you have a strong background with yoga. And you gave that wonderful list that had a lot to do with what people are doing and kind of how they're thinking. And I wondered if you could add to it just for us kind of uh, red flags for people to be aware of as what it feels like in their body when they're caught up in the clench, you know, the stressful striving. Absolutely. I, I think that it's very much the drive system and maybe also the threat system within our body. So you may notice contraction you may notice a sense of rushing, a sense of like you, you aren't here, you're kind of one step ahead, a holding of your breath, a shoulders that are at your ears. You know, that all of those things that are signals of sort of our evolutionary uh, brain around threat and drive. If we think about, I love Paul Gilbert's model of threat, drive, and compassion or contentment. So our threat system is what's designed for us to escape danger. And certainly many of us may strive to do that. We may strive to avoid our inner critic or someone else's critic. So that's sort of that fight, flight, freeze that we feel within our body when we're just alert and 
feel hypervigilant and afraid. And then we also have the drive system, which is to go and pursue resources, to go find a mate, to go get a job, to have enough, right? And you can also feel that little difference of what it feels like in your drive system when you have that urgency to go get. It feels differently, I think, in your body than threat. The contentment system is a different one. And Rick, you talk a lot about contentment and compassion. And and I think that that's a very different state. When we're in, we can pursue things that we care about, but do so in a way where we still feel settled within ourselves. We still feel like we are in our bodies, aware of what's happening. We still breathe. We still you know, allow ourselves to feel our hunger and fullness and our tiredness and respond to those needs. Mm. So they're just different. I think it maps onto our biology when we're in striving mode, unhealthy striving mode. And if you become attuned to sort of what's happening within your body, I think there's a lot of wisdom there that we could listen to as, as goalposts and guides that maybe we need to shift more to activities that help balance out those two symptoms, those two systems of threat and drive. Just to kind of clarify something for people, we can manage threats to our safety without tipping into stress about it. We can stay in the green zone about it as we manage that particular challenge. We can also have drive toward fulfilling our needs for satisfaction without tipping into stress about it. It's also true, of course, as you know, that we can be relational with other people, both in a stressful kind of way, and we can strive in our relationships, not in a stressful way. So I wondered, alternately, if you could give examples of what it could feel like in the body to manage challenges to safety, which engage our threat system, without the contraction and pressure of stressful striving. And I wondered if you could do the same thing kind of briefly for our pursuit of satisfaction, engaging the so-called drive system, but without that sense of pressure and contraction, and also with regard to our relationship desires, uh, without that sense of pressure and contraction. Yeah, so for me in the body, it, it often, when I want to think about how do I get from a, a place of threat drive that's unhealthy to more of contentment, it involves beginning with a grounding. So as a yoga teacher, I often start with the feet, or if you're sitting on the floor, starting with the contact with the ground. There's even some really beautiful yogic practices of growing roots, like imagining there's roots growing out from the soles of your feet all the way to the center of the earth. And it was interesting. I interviewed a while back, Yotam, oh gosh, I'm going to forget his name. He's at the Center for Compassion at Stanford, and they're teaching folks to grow roots. Yotam Heimberg, I think his name, I'll get it for you. But they're teaching folks to grow roots, you know, to, to ground yourself. And then I also think there's an aspect of connecting to your heart. Mm what really matters to you in this moment. Because a lot of times when we're caught in striving, we get disconnected from what matters. We get so into this sort of external view of ourselves, the ego, that what do I look like? Am I doing enough? But we lose contact with what's most important in the here and now. A lot of my work in acceptance and commitment therapy is working with people around values. And values are personal and chosen, and they're sort of like a direction that are to head that are based in the heart, based in love. So it does help to connect with your heart in an embodied way. And then I also think that we can begin to also open our bodies up a little bit more. Mm. So opening up your hands. I love DBTs, dialectical behavior therapy, the willing hands. Like, what would it be like if you opened your hands? Or Jed Brewer talks a lot about opening your eyes wide, Mm -hmm. right? And by doing that, what we're really embodying is acceptance. 
and openness and connection. Because one of the things that happens when we are in stressful striving is that we lose our interconnection. Mm. We we become so self-focused. We, we start, at least I do this, I start to think that I'm responsible for everything. I have to do it all. As opposed to seeing that we're much more interconnected than we think. I'm a beekeeper. And one of the things that bees do when they build new comb is they link their little legs together in a little string to get to the hard to reach places. And each of those bees is part of a greater whole. They're each individuals. They're all working, but they're also part of a greater whole and completely interdependent upon each other. Mm -hmm. So I'd say root, start with the ground, connect to your heart, and then begin to open up and open your eyes. And one of the things that I, I made a lit, I made that first list, mm-hmm. but I also made a second list of what are the signs? Like, how do I know when I'm in a, a healthier place around my striving? Because I yeah. do want to pursue important things in my life, mm-hmm. but I want to do it in a way that's more values-based, more compassionate, and a little bit less egocentric and fear-based, right? So mm-hmm. I was wondering, can I read you the second list? Oh, yeah. Okay. So here's my second list. And Maybe you can even just like settle in with yourself and listen, listen to this if you're a listener to see what, what hits you. So setting goals based on your values, prioritizing important domains of your life, pausing to take perspective on yourself and on others, getting behind the eyes of another, balancing effort with surrender, being present and working hard, taking time off even if you feel guilty, enjoying your life setting boundaries, using your effort to benefit the greater whole, and choosing cooperation over competition. Mm. So that when I'm in a healthy place, I'm, I'm checkmarking those things. Like I'm connected mm. with my values. I'm feeling interconnected. I'm not taking full responsibility and I'm grounded. So it's feet, heart, and openness. Mm. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I think about how important it is and to recognize that we can manage challenges to safety, satisfaction, and connection. We can engage the threat system, but that doesn't mean we need to feel stressed and frightened and angry and powerless, right? And so I think about the felt sense in the body of, you know, I don't know, stress-less striving, right? Happy striving. When dealing with threats, it's kind of calm capability, calm strength, you know, just what that feels like in your body. And then with regard to more pursuing goals of different kinds, what it feels like to be appreciative along the way, grateful along the way, without that sense of insistence and must that immediately is a slippery slope to a contracted effort, right? In terms of the satisfaction system, pursuing positive goals. And then last in relationships, you know, clearly it's that sense of being grounded in the heart, feeling the heart as you maybe are dealing with a conflict with somebody else or pushing, trying to get somebody to do something, but you're still rested in in the felt sense of the physical heart, that area in your chest as you go forward there. For me, those are really helpful markers in each of these areas that kind of obviously relate to everything you're saying. So I wondered what you think about all that. I love all that. I love that you're asking about the body because I think most people don't ask about the body. Yeah. We go mm-hmm. straight to the head. How do I need to think differently? Yeah. Or what do I need to do differently? Because as a culture, <laughs> as a species, we've lost we've lost touch with our bodies. There's so many things that pull us out of our bodies. So our bodies can be a great place to tune into. And, and, and even thinking about values and thinking about what's right for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really do that in a, I ask the question, or what do I need? I ask the question, I just sort of listen to my body, right? And that there's a lot of wisdom 
there. I'm a recovering head. <laughs> and, and as a person in recovery, I, I, I especially appreciate the body. Yeah, one of the things that we said early on here, Diana, is, or what you kind of alluded to, maybe I should say, is the idea of these experiences that lie underneath the presenting problem, if you will, of unhealthy striving or excessive stress, perfectionism, and so on. And one of the really important ideas to emphasize here that I think that you just kind of dropped in there very quickly, which I loved, is that perfectionism is essentially a defense mechanism. It is protecting you from something, some kind of experience that you don't want. Um, and so I was just wondering, in the work that you do with people, when you're getting to kind of unwind them from these systems of behavior, these patterns of behavior that they've internalized over time, based largely on the culture that we live in, what do you typically see as some of the underlying experiences that they're most trying to avoid? And what do you kind of do with people to either get them more comfortable with those experiences or get them to be less afraid of those experiences? Mm. Wonderful. Yes, there's often something that's underneath the, the drive for perfectionism. And mm. I just want to add before I go there that not all perfectionism is bad. Mm. And I learned a lot from Monica Bosco, who was on the From Striving to Thriving Summit that I recently did with Rick. She's a mom of three, Mexican-American psychologist who worked under Obama in the White House. And she talked about the difference between like how to dial up your perfectionism when you need it. She needs it in research and how to dial it back when it's not useful to you. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things I do with clients is starting to look at that dial because I want them to be in control of the dial as opposed to the perfectionism in control of it for them. Great. And when we start to look at what's driving the perfectionism, it often is something called experiential avoidance or in mm. ACT, acceptance commitment therapy, we call it experiential avoidance. So experiential avoidance is when something shows up under your skin, thoughts, emotions, sensations, memories, and you don't like it. You don't want it. You want it to go away. And so you do something to get rid of it. Often when we're children, we kind of learn our, our little strategies. For one child, it might be to be the, the goofball, right? For somebody else, it might be to be the perfectionist. Well, gosh, whenever I feel anxious, if I become really perfectionistic, it makes that anxiety, I get a sense of control. And then I also get praise. So not only do I get what's called negatively reinforced, I get rid of the aversive stimulus. I get positively reinforced because I get, yeah, I get praise, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the first things that I'll do is help people identify their own striving cycle. What is the cue? What is the particular behavior they're engaging in? And then what is the result? And does the result line up with the life that they want to have? Mm. So a classic example, I used to throw these like crazy birthday parties when my kids were little. And I can strive, <laughs> I can strive at anything. <laughs> and my mother-in-law came up to me at one of these birthday parties and she was like, do you think this makes other moms like you more or like you a little less? Mm. And I was like, hmm. And then a little bit later on in the birthday party, I realized not only that, when my kid was kind of talking to me earlier in that day and I was trying to set everything up perfectly, I was irritable and yelling at him. Yeah. The, the poor birthday boy. I'm like- You're stressing them out. Totally. <laughs> I'm stressing them out. And does that really line up with the type of mom I want to be in terms of a caring, compassionate, fun mom? Mm, because I'm mm -hmm. so, I'm being driven by the perfectionism. And what was the perfectionism about? My own social anxiety around mm. people coming to my house and am I good enough? So we can see these sort of like, what's underneath it for you? What's driving it? Is it feelings of not good enoughness? Is it you've been reinforced for it? 
Is it thoughts uh, like shoulds, um, self-stories about what it means to be a good person in the world? What's driving it? What are the behaviors that you do? Compulsive birthday party, you know, perfectionism. And then does the consequence really line up with the life you want to build? Sometimes it does. Mm. When I write a, a pitch to something, I get perfectionistic about it. I read it over three times. I have someone else read it over. I'm perfectionistic. And mm-hmm. that does well. Yeah. But that's my choice. Yeah. You know, and you get to choose whether or not you're going to strive for your values or you're just going to kind of let it go a little bit. And then we can talk a little bit about how do we deal with the discomfort that shows up when you let things go? Because that's hard for a perfectionist. This is such a great point, And I'm really glad that we're emphasizing it here because I think that it can be incredibly easy to get trapped into this very false binary where either you know, you're you're swept away by the culture and it's 24-7, 365, and you have to work really hard to achieve your goals and all of this different stuff, which of course you do to an extent often. You know, achieving your goals is often accompanied by valiant effort of different kinds. Or on the other hand, you have this just totally monk-like existence where you your your personal stressometer never exits the like two to five range on a 10-point scale. And of course, things are more complicated than that. And often, if we really want to achieve something in life, we have to give a certain amount of dedicated effort. And a lot of what we're really emphasizing here is the difference in in feeling tone and the difference in psychological stress that's accompanying the work that we're doing. But that's also what makes this kind of hard and complicated, right? Because a lot of people who have those more perfection-driven personality types, they don't necessarily have a great internal barometer for when they've gone from the comfy type of striving to the really, you know, psychologically problematic or or harmful type of striving. And what you'll often even see is because these defense mechanisms are defensive, you know, they're protecting against an experience, you can get really attached to the defenses and people will start to speak up on behalf of their negative forms of striving. I am sure that you've seen this with clients. I would imagine you've probably dealt with it in your own life. What do you do with people to get them to see their experience a little bit more clearly and maybe see the ways that these kind of unhealthy forms of striving are showing up for them when they're a little bit less aware of it? Yeah, you know, I think one of the core processes of acceptance and commitment therapy, so there's six core processes that help you build what's called psychological flexibility. And psychological flexibility is basically your ability to stay present, be in the life that you have, face obstacles, but continue to point yourself in the direction that matters to you, right? One of the core processes associated with that is something called perspective taking or having an observer self. Mm. And you're right. I think that when we're very much caught up in in ego and in our perfectionism, we don't have a, a great observer self. Yeah, We get this really narrow tunnel vision. We all have experienced that. And sometimes I'll have that with clients where I just see them like, oof, like laser tunnel vision of I am. And I actually think that's a good indicator if you start to, to look at some of your self stories that start with, I am this, I am not that. Mm-hmm. Because anytime we get ourselves into that belief system about who we are and what we do, we're often caught up in a, in a self story because it's much more contextual than that. Right. So helping people to identify with a little bit more granularity, a little bit more flexibility. Well, gosh, are there certain circumstances when this perfectionism is really serving you and really lines up with the type of person you want to be? If I were to videotape you throughout your day and watch you, what points in your day would I see you really being proud of you? 
Mm. You know, like liking how you're acting, liking how you're being right now. Mm. I love that. And then what parts are you a little bit like cringe or cringeworthy? <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, totally. Don't, don't video, don't publish this one, right? That may be an indicator. Mm. Well, first of all, what I'm doing there is I'm helping develop observer self. You are observing you, right? I'm helping you develop seeing that you are contextual. Mm. Like if you aren't the same all the time. But I'm also helping you identify what are the ty- what type of person you want to be, what are the values you want to pursue. Mm-hmm. So that would be an example. But any time that we can get a little bit of wiggle room from our own perspective, maybe looking at ourselves over a course of a timeline, looking at you know going back in time, looking at our life, it gets a little bit of distance, and that develops more of a perspective observer observer self. It's mm. great as we're talking here. I'm thinking about the inner audience that we try to get applause from and try to avoid jeers and tomatoes, especially if in our life, like myself, we internalized a lot of jeers and tomatoes or just stunned silence and dismissal you know, in interactions, let's say with my parents and my peers as a kid growing up. So we wanna please that inner audience and we also wanna please that external audience. And I'm thinking about the ways in which social referencing of different kinds, seeking approval, avoiding criticism is a major engine of the add-ons of stress and contraction and pressure and self taking things so personally that create the qualities of stressful striving. And I remember this saying I came across maybe almost 20 years ago from this fellow who in Chicago would drive around famous authors on book tours. Mm. Uh, Oprah, Michelle Obama, all kinds of people to various stations, radio stations, television stations for a series of interviews or book signings, big events, things like that. And one of the authors who was writing about this experience of this guy who was driving him around to these various places, he said, yeah, you know, you've seen everybody. You've seen all the bigs. You've seen everybody do this. Do you have any takeaway advice? Do you have any lessons learned? And the guy said, pursue excellence, ignore fame. Bingo. I just so thought about that, including my own neurotic efforts to pursue fame sometimes and and the price of that and then increasingly disengaging from that. So I wonder if you could just kind of talk about Mm. the social dimensions here, including the culture, you know, external social forces, but also the internalized processes in people in which they're seeking approval seeking applause, seeking admiration that are engines of stressful striving. You know, I think that starts really young for us. And we sort of come out wanting to be appreciated, have attention on us, loved. I mean, it's a very, it's part of our survival as a species. You need your parent to, you know, survive the, the early childhood years. But what can happen, I think, is either when we don't get that, that sort of unconditional need met, or when it's sort of overstimulated, like in some ways, you know, sometimes I'll talk with, you know, folks that feel like they constantly need appreciation, like as their, their food to keep going, to keep doing work. And they don't have that intrinsic motivator, the inside sort of sense of I'm building my own mastery and I don't, no one actually needs to know. We can, we can start to pursue that sort of, it it really is a dopamine hit, right? You, You get the dopamine, you get the anticipation of the reward, and then you actually get the reward. And then like all dopamine hits, they kind of, kind of drops off and you need to go pursue it again. Mm. There was this paper that came out this past year that kind of 
blew my mind a little bit. It's just changed so much how I kind of see this. So for a long time, folks have looked at this distinction between hedonic happiness, which is kind of what we're talking about, sort of the hedonic striving, the I want to get other people's attention. I want to get that dopamine hit. I want to get enough followers. I want to get my, whatever it is, my, my house perfect or my job impre- being impressive. And then there's also another type of happiness called eudonomic happiness, which I know you probably have talked about in terms of meaning and purpose. But this paper is by Oishi and Westgate talked about a third type of well-being, another dimension that has to do with something called psychological richness. Mm. And what psychological richness has to do with is curiosity, interest, perspective change, a sense that you're kind of like learning and growing in the world. Mm. And that type of well-being isn't something that we get a lot of praise for. Actually, one of, one of the things that they did in the study is they had people do escape rooms. And in the escape rooms, the folks that were able to get out of the escape room reported high levels of happiness, hedonic well-being, high levels of meaning. But the folks, when they turned up the dial of effort and making it really hard, the folks that couldn't get out of the escape room reported high levels of psychological richness. Like mm. this was a challenge. This was mm. kind of like hard. Now there's no prize. You didn't win. You didn't get out. You kind of are a loser. But but you develop something there. Mm. Another mm. area they looked at was um, folks that study abroad. They report higher levels of psychological richness, even though it's not as uh, pleasurable, right? Parenthood, a lot of meaning, a lot of psychological richness, not a whole lot of pleasure, right? <laughs> so I think mm. that what can start to, what we can start to look at is yes, we're we're trying to achieve one type of well-being, but there's other aspects of well-being in a well-lived life that in particular our culture doesn't do a very good job at saying are important mm. and that we need to do a better. I'm kind of looking at this like, okay, how am I doing on my meaning meter? How am I doing on my psychological richness meter? And do I have enough pleasure that all of them are important for a well-lived life? Yeah, when I think about the whole craving for social supplies as a driver of stressful striving in a nutshell that causes us to, you know, pursue fame and ignore excellence or only engage excellence in the service of fame, fame being kind of a umbrella term for all this stuff. Uh, One of the ways out of it that strikes me is paradoxical, which is to actually internalize social supplies when they come to you so they fill you up. And then you're not in that situation that you talked about as one of the markers of stressful striving early on of, you know, going, going, going and not really enjoying the results. But in fact, when you do get that praise or you do get that compliment or, you know, at a, at a person, whatever, when you get that, slow it down to really take it in. So increasingly you fill that hole in your heart and you're less hungry for it. There's that one part. And it strikes me that another part is to really understand the shallowness of so much applause it's a passing thing. It doesn't really feed you. It's like junk food. It's like cotton candy. It tastes good in the moment. It doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. And to shift out of being so externally directed and other directed into being more internally directed, interdirected in your in your values. And then the other one is to find ways to realize that, you know, people criticize. Not everybody's gonna like everything. It really doesn't matter. It's okay. You know, keep singing the songs that you can sing, keep doing what you think is important and not worry so much about avoiding criticism. It'll come. Everybody gets criticized. It's not the end of the world. Learn from it, dust yourself off and keep on going. I mean, for me, these are, these are helpful ways to be less 
caught up in that so American, oh my gosh, in our media crazy country, you know, that incredible pursuit, you know, for the applause of of the mob. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, as you're talking about that, it makes me, you know, think about this book I read a long time ago called Playing Big. It's actually what started our podcast. Mm. And one of the things that Tara Moore says in it is the bigger you play, the more likely you're going to be criticized, especially if you're a woman. Yeah. If you start playing big as a woman, you watch out. People are going to criticize you. Yeah. And if you're a woman of color, you know, sort of whatever whatever intersectional dynamic you have, you're going to be more likely to be criticized. Yeah. And so what's interesting, if you think about sort of that hedonic happiness, we can stay in that place. We can stay in the place of seeking out pleasure, playing playing small, or just being in that like that sort of comfort zone so that people don't criticize me, but people really like me. But it becomes, like you described, Rick, really dissatisfying. And that these other aspects of living, of living a meaningful and rich life, have some potential discomfort associated with them. Hmm. And that's where I feel like psychological flexibility comes in, is what do I do when that discomfort shows up? Do I practice self-compassion? Do I use my attention to focus and take in the good? Do I open up and allow and not sort of grasp at that? Do I do a little perspective shift of like, yeah, you know what? I remember Tara Moore, whenever she said this is going to happen, <laughs> like that was helpful to me in terms of criticism and feedback. And so I, I do think that we need some, some tools and some skills to be able to move out of our comfort zone and maybe sort of let go of sort of that hedonic happiness, that that's not the whole picture. Mm, that's great. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash being well. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. 
That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. To return to something that we were mentioning kind of a second ago, I do think that it's a natural impulse, maybe even a survival-based one, to want to win on some level. Like We, we have a success-driven culture, yes, but we're also practically success-driven as animals. We want to pass on gene copies that pass on gene copies. We want to get enough food. We want to, you know, we want to survive. And so one of the things that Rick talks about quite frequently is this idea of redefining success. And a lot of the time we get trapped in the kind of cultural narrative of what success looks like. And so that's the bar that we aim for. But we can reinterpret what success looks like for us so we can still have experiences of achievement even as we unpin from kind of the unhealthy forms of striving. So I just wanted to kind of like get that in for an exa- for a second, a practical example of that might be, you know, I, I play uh, probably a few too many video games from time to time. That's my hobby of choice. And sometimes I'll play somebody who's like significantly better than I am. And when I do, you know, I'm not really out there to win. I'm out there to learn and to have a good experience. And sometimes that can be my form of like winning inside of that situation. But anyways, to return to what you were saying just a second ago with psychological flexibility, it's generally really easy for us to tell people to do something like take a different perspective or, you know, become a little bit more psychologically flexible or apply more self-compassion or whatever. And often the feedback that we get is like, well, it's great to say these things, but it's often quite challenging to do them. So I'm wondering what are some of the things that you do in a very sort of step-by-step granular way to help the people that you work with increase their psychological flexibility? I went to a workshop with Steve Hayes when I was early in my graduate training. And he stood on a phone book Mm. and he jumped off of it. And he said, that's how big. (laughs) (laughs) That's how big the jump that you need to make your clients. So I think the first thing around psychological flexibility is that we try and make our leaps much bigger than they, than they should Mm. be. Mm -hmm. And um, that just sets us up. And there's sort of like this 90% rule in, in behavior change that you want to set someone up for success and have like 90% confidence that they're going to be able to achieve this, yeah. whatever change you set them out the door with. So yeah. I think the first thing is make it small and then make it smaller. Mm. Identifying behavior changes that are very tiny and then re- reinforce the heck out of them by reinforcing the value behind it. Mm. So if you look at something like weight loss, traditionally, a lot of people use all these external variables to reinforce weight loss. I think it's questionable in the first place if we should even be focusing on weight loss, but whatever. When those variables, like what about the day when the scale doesn't change? Do you give up on eating well? Do you give up on your exercise, right? That those types of external reinforcers can be really actually unhelpful to us. 
And so we need to set up a, a small behavior change that's linked to our values. So that would be the second step. So if someone were working with me on, hey, they came in and they want to lose weight, I would start to ask them why. What's behind that for you? What will losing weight allow you to do mm. that you feel like you can't do right now? Well, I feel like I could go to the beach and wear a bathing suit, or I feel like I could go to a party. And so a lot of times what we start to notice is that we're not actually doing the things that would make us feel more engaged and alive and values-based in our life because we're waiting to some future point. Mm -hmm. So with something like that, I'd identify the value and say, how can we act on that value today? So we could take a small move, have it act on your value. And then the third part of that would be, let's reinforce it. Mm. When you go to for a walk on the beach, what I want you to do is focus your attention, use your mindfulness and being present skills to water the seeds of what it feels like to live out your values of caring for your body or to live out your values of being in nature. And all of a sudden we've shifted from some kind of extrinsic goal to some kind of intrinsic goal that mm -hmm. even if we never lose weight, you've cared for your body today. So that would be an mm -hmm. example. Start small, have it be values-based, and then reinforce with your attention and awareness of what it feels like to live your values. That's great. Building on this idea of flexibility, I think you're getting at something really radical here. It seems to me that you're talking about an inner freedom, which relates very much. It's another way of talking about something Forrest talks a lot about, drawing on the work of Viktor Frankl, that space of choice, where there's a stimulus, but you're not so bound to the stimulus. That term from psychology, you know, being stimulus bound, we're just kind of glued to the thing. And I was cleaning up an archive of emails last night, and I got sucked into this computer, email, file, vortex that we all probably know well. And the next thing I knew, two hours had passed by and my wife is staring at me like, hey, I thought we were going to watch television together a while ago. Where'd you go? And I just got bound to that stimulus. And similarly, we can get bound to some kind of internal reaction or feeling inside of ourselves. And then we don't have any freedom, right? That's the opposite of flexibility. No freedom there at all. And I just kind of think that a lot of what gets us with regard to stressful striving is the sense of being um, unfree, unfree. We're like caught. We must. We're insistent, you know. And I wonder if you could just sort of talk more about what it feels like, what it actually feels like to be taking care of important goals, working long hours, around the edges, you're tired, but it's important. You're going for it. You're still dealing with it. But what it feels like along the way to retain this kind of inner freedom inside yourself, what's that feel like? I think choice is such an important word there. And that really lies at a lot of the foundation of this is the freedom to choose. And sometimes it's the freedom to choose our own discomfort or the freedom to choose turning towards discomfort. So what does that feel like? That feels like generating your action from the heart, from the inside out, as opposed to being pushed or pulled mm. from, you know, some other external outside force. And when I think about that, sort of like, gosh, the freedom to choose around whether or not I want to pursue something, like maybe I want to make a career change. A lot of folks are, are really dissatisfied with their work. 
And the pandemic really highlighted that. There's not a lot of meaning here. And now there's no pleasure here either because of COVID. So I need to get out of here. And actually, when you look at some of the most meaningful jobs, the jobs that are rated as having the most meaning, things like being a social worker, being an educator, being in the clergy, those are all highly meaningful jobs. They're not paid very well. No. And they often are kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. But people are choosing, if you're a social worker, you are choosing to put yourself into places of discomfort. And there's great meaning in that. And so I think when we can start to generate like a sense of autonomy that's independent of what my head says and maybe even the discomfort that may show up for me, but it comes much more from a place of this is what I really care about and a choice, it totally just changes your relationship with striving. Mm. It becomes, you know, a lot of times in Buddhism, they talk about effortless effort. It becomes that way this effortless effort. And it also becomes nonviolent because I think, you know, one of the, the yamas and niyamas of yoga, the yamas and niyamas being the ethical principles, one of them is ahimsa, hmm. practicing nonviolence. And we do these subtle ways of being violent towards ourselves that we don't even notice. Harming, non-harming. Harming, yeah. non-harming. Yeah. yeah. So like if I were to harm myself, but I were to pursue something that I cared about, hmm, that would be kind of revolutionarily different. Mm. It'd be totally different. And I do think having some skills and some of the things that you teach, Rick, psychological flexibility skills can really help us along the way. As you just kind of said there, Diana, many people, most people have experienced a major disruption of their work life over the past 18 months or so. And we've begun to hit this phase in the pandemic where a lot of people are returning to the situations that they left a year or more ago. And in the reinsertion of some of those old patterns, there's a rediscovery of the sensations that once accompanied them, basically. And for a lot of people, this might reactivate some old patterns around unhealthy striving, around unnecessary perfectionism, or it could lead people to a maybe new awareness of them. And so maybe there's some opportunity there to move some of those old patterns around. And for starters, I'm just wondering if this is something that you've seen in your practice. And if so, how have you helped people kind of reevaluate that meaning dimension of this whole thing when they come to a moment where they go, oh, maybe this isn't the thing that I want to be emphasizing in my life? Yeah. You know, I see it a lot with, I work a lot with graduate students. Mm, mm -hmm. So PhD students that are in this like long, they go in gung-ho, like this is great. And then it's this long haul of, by year three, you're wondering, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Like, this is the turning point where I keep on going or I turn back. What is the reason behind this? And certainly with the pandemic, people are going back to jobs that, like I said, they've lost some of the aspects that made their job enjoyable. And I think one of the, if we're looking at meaning and purpose and that component of well-being and even of striving, one of the questions we need to first ask ourselves is, do I need to leave? Mm. Is this a time when I do need to leave? Or is there something here that I could potentially claim for myself as a growth opportunity? Mm. So I often counsel PhD students when they're in year three, I'm like, stick with it. Because by the time you're in year five, you're either your advisor is taking you on as their protege and you're like launched or your advisor's given up on you and they don't care anymore and they want you out of there. So they're not going to be so <laughs> focused on you. And so there's some level of like, if I were to actually look at this from a different vantage point of meaning, purpose, what is sort of like my personal growth opportunity in this situation? How could I 
develop some skill set or some relationship or some aspect of this to make it meaningful to me, then you can draw upon that meaning to then pursue something that is hard. Mm -hmm. If you look at new parents, they do things for the first like three months of that baby being born that are nearly impossible. They're sleep deprived. They're like cleaning up bodily fluids. They're got crying in their ears all day. They're not, you know, doing well at their work or... And they still do it because mm. it's meaningful. Yeah, It's not even a question when your child cries. You just get up. And it's not effortful either. It's just sort of like, yeah, I'm going to do this because I care about this. Mm. So I would suggest folks that are going back to work and maybe feeling a little bit off, start to look at, you know, sort of what components of their job could they reclaim from themselves and maybe make more meaningful? Can they connect their job to something bigger? Can they find relationships there that are satisfying that they can pursue and, you know, step out of their comfort zone a little bit and, and grow and nurture? Or are there some personal qualities that they want to work on for themselves that by mm. staying could help? I love how in the second half of this conversation, we've moved toward, at least in my reading of it, this focus on kind of like the, the presence of control or the lack of control in your life. And where do you have control and where do you choose to cede control? I'm thinking of you know, I'm, I've not been a parent. Uh, both of you are parents. Uh, and I just think of it as the deliberate seeding of control to a degree. You are giving up the next six months of your life to an infant. And you're just like, I know what I'm signing up for. And I'm seeding the control of my experience during that period of time. But the, but the choice to seed control is itself a choice that you are making, that you have control over. So there's this kind of like interesting dynamic there. And I think that a lot of what you see people who are kind of on the OCD spectrum, if you sort of want to think about it that way, people who struggle with perfectionism, people who are unhealthy strivers, all of this. There's this heavy emphasis on attempting to really over-influence their environment. Mm -hmm. They're trying to control their outcomes by giving an enormous amount of effort or washing their hands five times or just making sure that the environment is exactly the way that they want it. Because if they just control it, they don't have to be afraid of it. And when you move somebody toward forms of releasing that control, which can include more psychological flexibility in a lot of ways, I would imagine it's quite natural for a lot of anxieties to appear around that because those fears that we have been pushing down or those fears that we've been running away from suddenly become so much more present in our lives. And I'm wondering for starters, as I'm not a clinician, if that is something that you've seen in your clinical practice with people. And if so, how do you help people through that process when that anxiety starts bubbling up? Absolutely. You know, exposure therapy is probably one of the most evidence-based approaches to anxiety. Yeah. And what are you doing in exposure therapy? You're asking someone to come into your office and choose to be uncomfortable, <laughs> like yeah. experience their anxiety, right? <laughs> it's a big ask, yeah. Whether that's, you know, I've had folks, I take them down to go touch the trash can. And then after you touch the trash can, you like rub your arms and rub your hair, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I, it's, it's all sorts of things that are kind of gross and, and also yeah. uncomfortable. So yeah, what do we do with that? There's a lot of paradoxes in psychology. One of the paradoxes is sort of like, the harder you try to be happy, the less you're going to be happy. Mm -hmm. The harder you try to fall asleep, guess what? The less likely you're going to sleep. And the harder you try and control your anxiety, the more suffering you will have. Yeah, for sure. Attempts to control what's underneath our skin contributes to the worsening of that very sensation. So what do we do instead? I, I really believe in body-based practices. So one of the things that I do is let's get, well, I'll talk to you about what I do with thoughts, but that'd be great. Let's pause on the thoughts right now and just bring attention to 
our inner sensations within our body. Mm -hmm. And so, and listeners can do this while, while I talk you through it. It's just paying attention to what areas in your body feel that sort of anxiety. What color would they be if they were a color? What shape would they be? Are they moving? Does bringing your awareness to them actually change them? You know, mm. so bringing awareness to the sensations in your body as sensations and noticing that they are changing over time. And even with those sensations in your body, can you still attend to the present moment? Can you still be here with me? Can you sort of toggle back and forth of being aware of your body and then also being aware of me? Can we imagine having these sensations in your body and still going and touching that trash can <laughs> or with strivers? Can you imagine having those sensations in your body and still not opening your computer after nine at night? Mm -hmm. That's a goal for you, mm -hmm. right? Can you imagine having that sensation and the urge, like the rising energy of an urge and not pick up your phone, but notice that tendency that I want to pick up my phone and check, right? So we bring, I do a lot of body-based work and that in itself is exposure because what you're doing is you're starting to bring a different awareness to what's happening to the sensations in your body without trying to control or get rid of them. But the other thing that I'll do with folks is something called cognitive diffusion, which is a sort of a decentering exercise to change your relationship with your thoughts. Mm. Uh, for a long time in cognitive behavioral therapies, there was sort of this approach of we need to change our thoughts to change our life. And there's some benefit to that, but there also is some times when trying to change your thoughts or think happy thoughts just gets you more entangled in them mm. and maybe even makes them worse, right? So I've, I've had a lot of, you know, in my early therapy sessions, like arguing with someone that they aren't fat. Well, guess what? I'm going to never win that argument, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It doesn't make them, you know, feel any less fat, right? Mm. So what we can do with our thoughts, and actually this is a nice little exercise that sometimes I'll do with clients in my room, is that I'll like imagine that you have some anxious thought across your palm. For me, I have an anxious thought right now that I'm talking too much and taking up too much time mm. and that I'm kind of not making sense. So that's <laughs> my anxious thought. And what happens when we're entangled in our anxious thought is that it, we hold it real up close to your face. So imagine you have your anxious thought. Do you want to give one to me, Forrest? An anxious thought you tend to have? Sure. Um... I think that I'm also very vulnerable to the talking too much anxious thought. That one definitely creeps up for me. I mean, probably particularly when I'm recording a podcast, but just in general. So that's a really good one. I think that a chronic one for me is that people don't actually like being around me. Nice. So I'm in some social engagement and I'm like, eh, you know, these people would probably rather be doing something else right now. Perfect. Okay. People don't like yeah. being around me and I talk too much. Mm. <laughs> you got, yeah, you sure. got two hands here. <laughs> it's the double whammy. Yeah. <laughs> So what do I do? Okay, so hold those two thoughts. Imagine they're written on your hands and hold them mm -hmm. up to your face with your eyes open really close so they're almost touching your eyelashes. How well, if you were interacting with me in a social situation, can you see me? Not very. And how well can you actually, would you be able to read the thoughts written across your hand when they're this close? Probably not very, yeah, a little blurry. A little blurry. Your hands are pretty blurry, right? Yeah. So what I'd like for you to do now is slowly move your hands away from your face and put your hands down. Maybe you can just put them at your sides or in your lap. And these thoughts are still there, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you were to choose to look at the, I'm talking too much thought, you could choose to look at that. And it may be helpful to look at every once in a while, because sometimes I do talk too much. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or you could choose to look at the other one, you know, like people don't really like me. You could choose to look at that one. But you could also choose to look at me and, and have these thoughts here. 
And that's decentering or distancing from your thoughts. And what you're doing there is you're getting a little space from it. What was it like for you? I mean, really interesting, honestly. (laughs) So that was actually really cool. Um, Definitely like a sense of compression and, and weight and kind of pressure when they were right up on my eyes. And I had my hands very close to my head. As they kind of pulled away from me, having it sort of in the almost the periphery of my vision, but kind of in front of my face, that felt much more comfortable. I think that my resting experience is getting more like that as I've tried to apply these principles from the podcast over time. But it's also a good reminder because I do think that a lot of the time those thoughts get from like kind of out here a couple feet away from me. And they get just right up into the center of me. And having that additional space is very useful. And I think it's important to note that I didn't cut off your hands. Yeah. I didn't tie Mm -hmm. your hands behind your back. Mm -hmm. Right? Because that's what we tend to do. It's like, I'm just going to try and not think about that thing. Right? Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to try and like push it down. But there's some consequences to that. Either you completely have to numb out your life, like take Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, drugs, substances, not eat, you know, do all sorts of things to not feel, which has its problems, or it's not successful. They just rebound Mm -hmm. because you're so busy trying to push those thoughts down that you actually can't engage with the person either. Mm. So when you get a little bit of distance from your thoughts and you have a little bit more choice around, you know, Rick Hansen's thought watering is so, I mean, that you can, sometimes we want some thoughts that we want to pay attention to when we want to really get into our nervous system, into our brains and into our bodies, Mm. but we're the chooser. So it comes back again to that choice. And that's ultimately the goal of all of this, that you are free to choose to build the life that you want to live and be the person that you want to be. You may not be free to have choice around your life circumstances, the body that you're born into, the situation that you're born into, but you do have freedom to choose to live in alignment with your values and really be engaged in the world that is, I would say, more compassionate, more authentic, Mm -hmm. and hopefully doing good that doesn't just benefit you, but benefits others. And that would be sort of the ultimate goal of healthy striving. Mm. I love that. That was a great exercise, personally useful. And also, just as an aside, I thought you really brought it home at the end there from a narrative standpoint, returning it to the idea of choice, which I do think has just run through this in such a lovely way. Yeah. I mean, we're... I'm approaching the end here, I guess, at some point. And I'm just reminded of the classic saying, uh, comes out of Buddhism, but, you know, a wise rider, that we should be with our minds like the wise rider of a horse, neither too tight nor too loose a rein. Mm. And another version of that metaphor has to do with playing a lute back 2,500 years ago that you don't want to over-tighten or over-loosen the strings, if you want to make beautiful music. So it's that that middle place, kind of the Goldilocks place that's just right. Mm. And that seems to be a running theme here. We don't want to err on the side, on the one hand, of being a total slacker, always procrastinating and putting off important things, not tending to important things, not doing what we can to care for other people in the world. On the one hand, we don't want to do that. On the other hand, we don't want to be too tight. We don't want to over-control. We don't want to you know, get all caught up in forcing happiness or fighting with our anxiety or approaching life in a tense, pressured and and driven kind of way. We want to find that middle place. Mm. And just reflecting here for myself about all this, what are some of the simple direct go-tos that help a person rest in that middle place? You know, I'm listening for what you've been talking about here. And one of them, I think, is to recognize 
that you're already doing a good job when you are. And if not, do a good job. You know, do your part every day. Make wise efforts every day. You know, I think Mayor Baba had these the saying that everybody quotes, don't worry, be happy. But there was actually an additional statement that is not quoted often enough. Don't worry, be happy, make efforts. All right, make efforts. So, so that's one. Know that make efforts and know that you're making those efforts. And two, I think the whole process of, I guess there's a, you know, a saying also in Zen about being sort of me-centered or life-centered. What I mean by that is, yeah, if we feel like we're the central engine of our lives, that inherently takes us to a place of stress. On the other hand, if we feel increasingly that we are being carried along by currents of various kinds, values, as you put it, wholesome purposes, larger forces that we're surrendered to, also one of the words you flagged early on, then it doesn't feel so stressful. It's our purposes are carrying us along. Our, our love is carrying us forward. We're being lived by love. We're being lived by our curiosities and you know the deepest longings of our heart. That too is, is really, really possible. And then I think the, the last thing that really just strikes me that helps us stay in this, this place, this middle place, is, as you put it, knowing why you're doing it and feeling it your choice and choosing the greater happiness over the lesser one and really reminding yourself, I don't have to do this because then you retain the freedom. You retain that quality of choice and that's at the heart of flexibility. I don't have to do this. I'm choosing to do this because it's important to me given my various values. And that supports me in feeling that I'm given over to this rather than stressfully clawing my way up the mountain. Mm. I wanted to offer those toward the end here and kind of get your maybe last thoughts about all that. My last thought on that is you use the word mountain. And when I was in graduate school, I had a sticker on my water bottle that said, my thighs carry me up the mountain. Yeah. And for me, it was a real statement about my own recovery and my own relationship with my body. But also a question that I would ask when clients that I would be working with when they'd come in and I, and I would say, if you weren't spending all of your time and energy and resources fighting your body yeah. and climbing this mountain of your, whatever it is, your eating disorder or unhealthy striving, if you weren't doing that, what mountains would you want to climb? Mm. And for me, that mountain has been becoming a therapist, a clinical psychologist, doing works like this. And it's not always comfortable. It's uncomfortable, yeah. but it's much more meaningful and linked to a life that I think can help people. If you start climbing, use your thighs to carry you up the mountains that are important to you, I guess. Mm. I love that, Diana. And I think that it's a great summary of everything that we've talked about today. You know, it's it's not just about, are you making effort? It's the direction that you're making effort toward and the sensation that the effort is evoking inside of your body as you're making it. So again, thanks so much for doing this with us today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. It was a delight. Today, Rick and I had a great time speaking with Dr. Diana Hill about unhealthy forms of striving and how we can overcome excessive perfectionistic instincts. Diana is the author of the ACT Daily Journal, and she's one of the hosts of the Psychologists Off the Clock podcast. If you're interested in learning more about these topics, she also recently put on a summit 
focused on From Striving to Thriving, and Rick was actually a guest at that summit. So if you'd like more material related to this, you can follow the link in the description of today's podcast to that. We started with Diana's personal experience as a recovering anorexic, which she referred to as the Olympics of Striving. Her recovery from that took her towards psychology, where she wanted to work with people to help them overcome their unhealthy impulses and patterns of behavior as well. We focused the first half of the conversation on where unhealthy striving comes from, what it feels like, and what rests underneath it. What are the experiences that we're trying to protect ourselves from when we engage in perfectionism or workaholicism? One of the really key points that was emphasized early on is the experience in the body associated with unhealthy striving versus more positive forms of aspiration. Diana really emphasized this feeling of contraction, which actually reminded me of our recent conversation with Dr. Judd Brewer, where he talked about this fundamental difference between expansion and contraction that you see particularly evidenced by people who are very experienced meditators. They find it easier to move into a very expansive state. And we can often experience that state physically in the body itself. So if you're asking yourself this question, am I engaging in more positive forms of healthy striving or am I falling into unhealthy forms of striving? One way you can really check in with yourself is by asking, hey, what's the sensation in my body right now? You might feel tired at the end of the day if you're parenting a young child. But alongside that, there can be an immense experience of fulfillment and expansion. At the same time, you can be tired at the end of a long day from working an extremely demanding job and not have that same experience of fulfillment. So that's something to really keep an eye on. A lot of the time, what lies underneath excessive forms of perfectionism is fear. The fear that we won't achieve everything we're supposed to achieve. The fear that people won't view us the way that we would like them to view us. The fear that we'll be punished for our efforts in some way. So rather than face that fear, we attempt to control the environment. We make sure that we are just absolutely beyond reproach. But the truth is that the applause of the crowd lasts only for a moment and is often pretty hollow. And people can always find another reason to dislike you. To truly be fulfilled, to unpin from these unhealthy forms of striving, we have to get comfortable releasing the illusion of control a little bit. But when we do that, when we give up the illusion of control, it can be really scary. It can be extremely stressful. And Diana talked for a little while about some of the things that she does with clients in order to get them through that painful period. She did a little exercise with me where I held up these two pathogenic beliefs, these negative ideas, very, very close to my eyes. The first one was that, hey, maybe I'm talking a little bit too much. The second one was, ah, you know, I'm in this social situation and I feel like people would just rather be interacting with somebody else. She had me first externalize them, putting them on the palms of my hands. Then she had me hold them very, very close to my face so I couldn't see her but I also couldn't really see them very well, right? Your hands are kind of blurry when they're right up close to your eyes. Then I slowly distanced them from my face and they came into better focus, but they were also outside of me, right? They were on my hands a couple feet away from my head. And then as I let my hands drop, the beliefs stayed there. They stayed outside of me a few feet away where I could see them, acknowledge them, 
and didn't have to think of them as being a part of me. Instead of that, they were just beliefs that were kind of floating in the air around me. And this got to another key point. Sometimes perfectionism can be useful, healthy even. I definitely do a lot of review when I'm planning for these podcasts. I do a lot of research. I do a lot of copy editing. I think about the questions that I want to ask ahead of time. I want to do a good interview. I want to make the guest happy. I want to make our listeners happy. And hey, I also want to feel happy about the quality of my work. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. The problems begin to emerge when we tip from those healthy forms of achievement seeking into negative and problematic forms of unhealthy striving and all of the pains associated with that. So it can be useful to keep that externalized belief in our field of view because, you know, there are moments, being honest, where I probably do monologue a little bit too hard, both on the podcast and out in my everyday social life. But most of the time, what I'm doing is really probably pretty okay. So I can see that belief. I can acknowledge it. I can take in what teaching it has to give me from time to time about myself. But most of the time, I can experience it as something that's outside of me, something that I don't have to attach my identity to. And that's the balance. That's how you can have aspiration without attachment. Aspire in healthy ways, aim high, seek fulfillment, all of that good stuff, but without becoming too caught up in the rat race. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review that really helps us out. And also, hey, you can tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. Also, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a variety of bonuses in return, like expanded show notes, ad-free versions of the episodes, and transcripts of everything that we produce. Finally, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.